You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm number three. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray now that you would indeed uh, bless this feast and feed our souls, that you would comfort, that you would guide, that you would console, that you would even warn, that you would bring life tonight. We pray that you would encourage us by your spirit as we assemble now under your word. King Jesus, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. A little bit brighter this afternoon. It's good. Uh, My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after and indeed uh, sit with you and eat some dinner with you after at our potluck down the hall uh, just to get to know you and uh, hear about how you came to Christ Church or to Albuquerque or however that may be. Uh, When I was in the seventh and the eighth grade in the Dallas area, oh yeah, sorry, you're just going to stand there and wait. Uh, This is a torch week. Uh, If you're a fourth through a sixth grader, and want to go talk about the broken teeth of the wicked and let Patrick explain that, <laughs> uh, then you can do that with Patrick and Gail. Like I was saying, when I was in middle school, 7th and 8th grade, there was, a, there was a guy named Justin, and Justin was my arch nemesis. Uh, Justin was better at sports than I was, and he and I both liked Nicole, uh, but Nicole would come in on Mondays and tell me how she, over the weekend, went and saw Titanic with Justin for like the 12th week in a row. Uh, But more than that, uh, even more than those reasons why I didn't like Justin, uh, even though I was pretty generally well-liked at Calhoun Middle School, uh, for some reason, Justin just had it out for me. Not like in a, I'm going to beat you up after school kind of way, but like, I'm just not going to like you. And I'm going to like let everyone else know that I don't like you, and I'm going to try to humiliate you. Uh, for most of my existence in the seventh and eighth grade. I'm pretty sure Justin moved away after the eighth grade. I don't really remember that day. It wasn't like a celebration when he moved away or anything. Uh, And I do wonder what our relationship would have looked like if he had stayed on at at my high school. Because after all, like, middle school humans are the worst humans. And uh, I'm sure all of us have uh, a middle school arch nemesis in our own imaginations and memories. Uh, But... While I certainly have experienced uh, levels of opposition since the seventh and eighth grade, coworkers, neighbors, and just acquaintances, uh, these instances of opposition have been relatively insignificant to what many of you have experienced from other humans who 
either seem to be or actually are against you, uh, whether in an ongoing type of just frustrating nemesis type way or in a one-off or ongoing relationship of violence, of exploitation. And so we come to Psalm 3, the first of what we might call the imprecatory psalms. It's a word we don't uh, use very often, but the word imprecate, imprecatory. These are psalms, any psalm which prays for, which asks for, which requests or desires, which wishes for the judgment of God upon an enemy. Some of these psalms are imprecatory through and through. Asking for judgment is like the divining theme of the, of the psalm from start to finish. Many, many others, though, just have a verse or two seemingly out of nowhere, like Psalm 139 that I mentioned two weeks ago. Like many of the things that we have on throw pillows or on our walls, uh, how I am fearfully and wonderfully made, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and then David just then out of nowhere says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Like, where in the world did that come from? So maybe you're learning to pray the Psalms, like many of us did together upstairs before the service last week, where we prayed through Psalm 1 for our church, and we prayed through Psalm 2 for our city and the nations around us. And then, perhaps at our next prayer meeting, we get to Psalm 3. Or tomorrow morning, with your cup of coffee, you open Psalm 3, and you think, I'm going to pray through this psalm. And then you are thinking it's a, it's a little weird, but then you get to verse 7, and you think Christians certainly can't pray psalms like this, can, can't we? Jesus has clearly taught us to love our enemies and not to hate them. We should be praying for their peace and their salvation rather than their destruction and their judgment, right? We should skip verse 7 if we ever pray through Psalm 3, or if we get to Psalm 3 and feel the weirdness of it, we should just skip it altogether and get to something that's more comfortable. And then past that, much of this psalm seems so specific to David. Like we observed last week, the subtitle of Psalm 3 in your English Bible, that's original, and it tells us that this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This is a psalm that was written by a very specific person at a very specific point in history, at a very specific point in his life. David's son Absalom, he is leading a political and military coup over his father. He is trying to rip the kingdom from his father, David, and a very few uh, group of loyal followers are escaping from Jerusalem. They're trying to hightail it out of there before Absalom and his giant army arrive and kill everyone. Very few of us are in a position where we like lose count of the enemies that we have in our life. We lose count of the number of people whom we are afraid are actually going to kill us today. So surely this is a psalm for David then. Surely it's not applicable to us. And even if we say that uh, these words are applicable to us, are his words even commendable then? Even in the present time in which he is writing. C.S. Lewis famously describes psalms like these, especially uh, the words that we might find in verse 7 as profoundly wrong, Lewis says, and that we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved of these prayers. So, what in the world do we do? 
I've asked a lot of questions. I've perhaps raised a lot of problems. So let's try to save most of those answers to when we actually get to that problem in verse 7. There's a lot that comes before verse 7. And it shouldn't be too surprising if you've been around Christ Church at all, but I'm going to suggest that we understand, we interpret, and that we apply Psalm 3 in exactly that order, that we understand, and then we interpret, and then we apply. Like every other text, we ought to seek to understand the original context. We ought to interpret through reflection on this text's place and trajectory within the Bible itself, And then we ought to apply through the lens and the grid of the work of Christ, the anointed son of David. So we're going to work through those steps and through the psalm itself by thinking through three main sections through the major stanzas of this psalm, in that the pressures of the world, the peace of God, and the prayers of his people. So first of all, in these first two verses, the pressures of the world, a little bit of context I've already uh, mentioned a little bit, but... Before David, before David was the king of Israel, the people of Israel had chosen a king after their own heart. They chose Saul. He looked like a king ought to look like. But then God replaced King Saul and himself then chose a king after his own heart. God chose David, who didn't look like a king ought to look, but loved like a king ought to love. And so, like we thought through last week, David was about the best that Israel could have humanly hoped for in a king. He is the Psalm 1 man who meditates on God's word so that he might then actually be able to be the Psalm 2 king who extends the rule and the reign of God. And yet, David is exactly that. He is the best that Israel could have humanly hoped for. He is a human just like the rest of humanity. David replays the Garden of Eden scene where David is up on his rooftop and he sees Bathsheba. He sees her as Eve saw the fruit was pleasing to the eye and just like Eve, he reaches out and he takes her at a new tree of knowledge of uh, the knowledge of good and evil moment. He shows himself just like Adam to not be the priestly king who will protect the temple kingdom of God. He fails just like Adam, just like Abraham, just like Moses, just like every other human ought to have been. After getting Bathsheba pregnant, he has her husband murdered. And then after all of this, God promises that evil will come from within David's house. So many years later, one of David's sons, Amnon, he has his own tree moment. He sees that his own sister, Tamar, is pleasing to the eye, and he takes her. And rather than protecting his daughter and responding with justice, David essentially shrugs it off. Tamar's brother, Absalom, bides his time for a few years, and then he takes matters into his own hands to avenge his sister. He kills his brother Amnon, and then he starts, out an, he starts an all-out revolution against his father, the king. He sees David's wives, and he takes them in plain open sight of the entire city. The book of 2 Samuel, in which all this happens, is a slow deterioration of David's kingdom, and it is grisly. It is violent. It is often very difficult to read. And so it's in this context, in 2 Samuel 16, when David and his loyalists are marching out of Jerusalem before Absalom and his army can arrive, and a guy, as they are walking out, a guy named Shimei, 
comes out of his house along the road in which David and his small band of loyalists are walking, and Shimei threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. David's men want to kill this man for this cursing that he has put on David, but David stops them. He essentially says, maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. Maybe I do deserve this curse from God. And If I don't, though, then God will do right by me, and he will do wrong by this guy Shimei. And so it's in this context that we then read Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2, where David is walking out of the city, and he is writing this poem of lament, of reflection, when he says, "'O Lord, how many are my foes!' Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. We see the word many appear three times here, and the many are escalating. They are escalating and escalating. In the first line, David just observes how many are his foes. They're opposed to his kingdom, but they just are. They are static. But the second many, the static many, then become active in their opposition against David. They become not just the theoretical raging kingdoms of the world in Psalm 2, but the ragers now have actual names and faces. David knows many of their names. One of them, the one who is leading this opposition, is his own son. They're rising up in their active attempts to overthrow the king. And then, in the third line, they aren't just physically opposed to David, but they are now theologically opposed to him as well. The many are the Psalm 1 scoffers who say that God is not for you. Like Shimei, he's he's basically saying, like, keep praying to God all you want. That's fine. He's not going to hear you. He's not going to respond. There is no salvation for you in this God. So you're wasting your time. David has hit the very rock bottom. He has lost his kingdom. He has lost his people. He has lost most of his family. And since kings represent the people before God, in the Old Testament as the king goes, so the nation goes, he's lost assurance from the very people around him that he belongs to God and that he actually represents them. Maybe God is giving this kingdom to someone else that he might, this next king might represent the people even better than he has. Is God there? Is God good? Will he hear? Will he save? Is there salvation in the Lord? The pressures of the world are great, great and they are overwhelming. But David then acts for us as a model of faith. Rather than judging God's nearness, rather than judging God's goodness based on the circumstances surrounding him, rather than listening to outside voices and even passively listening to his own inner monologue or doubting, despairing voice, 
He takes action. He chooses to not listen to himself, but he chooses to preach to himself, to remind himself of the promises of God, which he has believed and which he has experienced. And so now, we, secondly, we see the pressures of the world give way to the peace of God. Verses 3 through 6, despite all of that, David turns to God. He says in verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. He says that God is a shield about him or around him. He's not just a shield in front of him, like shields actually are. Like if you have a shield, all you are protected are are the things in front of you. God is acting as a shield surrounding him, front and behind. He is a protector, and God is his glory. God is the one who gives David any sense of significance or dignity. David's throne isn't his glory. He's lost it. David's reputation isn't his glory. He's lost it. Even David's children aren't his glory. He's lost many of them. But God and God alone is his protector and is his glory. God and God alone is his dignity, is his significance. And so even though David walked out of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 15, he walks up to the Mount of Olives weeping. He walks up barefoot. He walks up with his very head covered and hanging. He calls God the lifter of his head. Just like in the Joseph story in Genesis, when Pharaoh lifted up the head of the cupbearer, this is more than just a, a, hey man, like keep your chin up. Like turn that frown upside down, David. This is much more than that. This, there is that, but this is a restoration to service. Like Pharaoh restored the cupbearer to his service, God is restoring David to his kingly service. And so David is not only actively preaching to himself of what is true, he is actively reminding himself of how he cried out to God. He says in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Or from a honking horn, he's answering. I don't know what this is. Let's just do our best here, people. Calvin says of this verse, of how God answers from his holy hill, Nothing can be more uncoming, unbecoming than to sullenly gnaw the bit which we are bridled and to withhold our groaning from God if indeed we have any faith in his promises. Isn't that a picture? Nothing can be more unbecoming than if we feel bridled than to just sullenly gnaw on the bit, hating that we are being led in some direction. We, like David could have, just sit there in our anxiety. We could just sit there in our doubt. We could just sit there in our trouble, sit there even amidst opposition from enemies, and then just chew and chew and chew and let it eat us alive. But I routinely remind many of you of what Spurgeon says of anxiety, that anxiety is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't take you anywhere. Instead, what Spurgeon, what Calvin, and what David are trying to teach us here is to do what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter 5. Not to just sit and chew on our trouble, on our worry, on our anxiety, but to cast all our anxiety on him. Why? Because, Peter tells us, because he cares for you. Because God wants to hear to listen and to respond. 
which David, now outside of the city and looking across the valley, does. He fixes his eyes across the valley on the tabernacle, sitting on top of the hill of Mount Zion. It is the place of God's presence. It is the place of sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins. And he preaches to himself, perhaps saying, even if I don't feel it, even if I don't understand it or see it right now, you are there and you are for me. Why? He has no reason to feel that kind of comfort in and of himself. He is not without sin. He is not without massive, terrible, generationally affecting sin. But why can he feel this kind of peace? Why can he feel this answering from the Lord? Well, as we can be reminded from Psalm 51, after this great, awful, generationally affecting sin, David cries out to the Lord and he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so he is reassured by an answer of assurance from God, of an answer of forgiveness. Our sin doesn't just put us in a place of existential or felt guilt, but our sin puts us in a place of actual guilt, of actual transgression against an actual God. But if you are a Christian, if you have come to Christ in broken humility, perhaps not even not not necessarily saying the words of Psalm 51, but with a heart that reflects the repentance and humility of Psalm 51, agreeing with God about his goodness, agreeing with God about your sin and self-worship, and then come to him by faith, then we can have the confidence that he is not only able, but that he is willing to forgive sins, to cleanse us by uniting us and knitting our lives so closely and interconnectedly to the life and work of Jesus. Christian, when you imagine God the Father, what is the disposition of his face toward you? This is worth reflecting on. What is the face of God toward you when he thinks of you? Anger? Disappointment? Regret? Wish I hadn't called and saved that loser, that sinner who cannot get his or her life together. If you are in Christ, God the Father's fundamental disposition toward you is his disposition toward God the Son, that of, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. For you gals, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because he or she is so knit, so united together in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, in whom I am well pleased. 
David feels and knows the loving fatherhood of God and so can say, amidst being on the run, perhaps even understanding that his life is in great danger, he can say and reflect in verse 5 by saying, I lay down and I slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. From his own experience, David knows the the very vulnerable place of putting yourself in a place of sleep. It's a weird thing that we humans do, right? It's perhaps one of the weirdest things. Like our entire being goes into a state of other consciousness. It's really strange. And David himself might remember the times in which he could have killed King Saul while Saul slept. But despite the many thousands around him, David is not afraid. He's not afraid to be awake. He's not afraid to be asleep. He's able to drift off right to sleep. Maybe not because he isn't a little concerned that he might not actually make it through this, but more likely, I mean, like, what's the worst that they can do to me? Kill me? Is that all? Like, that's serious business, and David likely is not praying for that. He would never wish for his own death, but certainly While my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. David is not afraid of death. The world is raging, the circumstances are changing, and he often does not get what he wants, but he trusts that God will only give him what he needs. And so despite the pressures of the world, David is experiencing and he is trusting in the very peace of God. And yet despite perhaps not being afraid of death, he is now going to call on God to act. He is going to pray and cry out to God that God would actually bring him physical salvation, that he would not die in the midst of all this, that God would deliver him from the wicked rebellion that looks to overthrow the rule of God. And so now let's get to this last part here, perhaps the most difficult part, and now consider the prayers of his people. Where amidst all of this, David then says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is difficult. No bones about it. Over the past month or so, I've been reading and listening to a lot, as much as I could get my hands and ears on, on the imprecatory psalms, how to read and interpret them, um, and if we can perhaps apply them. Uh, The absolute best resource that I've come across uh, over the past month or so is a podcast interview with a guy named Trevor Lawrence, not the uh, quarterback of Clemson, although that would be something. Uh, uh, But this guy, Trevor Lawrence, who is finishing up his uh, PhD dissertation on the imprecatory psalms, And I hope so much that his dissertation will get repackaged and republished in a more accessible form. The moment that happens, we will get that book on the book cart out in the lobby. But uh, we'll send that link uh, along in the weekly email for that podcast this week because much of what I'm about to pass along comes from this brother's great work over the past many years of research and of writing. But first... A couple of general observations. We often don't know what to do with psalms like this. We read a a line like, break the teeth of the wicked, and we have no category for that because, as Americans, we very rarely experience the kind of suffering that many of these psalmists are experiencing when they pray or write these things. 
It seems totally out of place for me to ask God to destroy someone when they've said something mean to me or about Christians on Facebook. That seems like an overreaction. For me to pray that God would break the teeth of someone who like got my number and put it on a robocall list, that seems a bit like an overreaction. But what if you are a Nigerian Christian? What if you are a Syrian or a Sri Lankan Christian, where many in your family over the past many months and years and decades have been killed, tortured, publicly executed? What if you are a Eastern European Christian under the Iron Curtain in the 1900s? Or if you are an African American Christian enslaved in the South generation after generation under the constant harassment and violence and racism of slavery? What if you've been any number of Christians throughout the centuries who don't know if they're actually going to survive the night and you are pleading with God to act? You are pleading with God to not let the violence and the injustice continue on forever. So living today in the West, in the most affluent and safest time for Christians to have lived in the past 2,000 years, this makes psalms like these difficult for us to identify with. Still, many are right to think of the psalms as the songbook of Jesus or the prayer book of Jesus. All of the psalms, not just the imprecatory ones, but all the psalms, just like we saw last week and the week before in Psalms 1 and 2, they are just oozing out of Jesus' teaching ministry. His disciples are very quick to point out ways in which these psalms have uh, applied or been, or been realized in Jesus' life. Even David often wrote and spoke in ways that were better and more idealistic than even he could have hoped for in his own life. And so the Psalms aren't fully realized, aren't fully fulfilled until the coming of David's greater son, the coming of Jesus. And we can absolutely see that and agree here in Psalm 3. Even before verse 7, Jesus too is driven out of Jerusalem on the very same pathway that David walked out of Jerusalem through the valley and up to the Mount of Olives, where he might overlook this valley and consider the promises of God as he looks toward the temple. Many are his foes who would rise up against him, too many to count. Like I mentioned last week, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts in chapter 4, Acts 4, says that Psalm 2 is happening all over the end of Jesus' life and ministry. The Jewish leadership, the Roman government, they are raging against his kingdom, that the son of David might be overthrown. And yet, even though the pressures of the world are mounting and potentially overwhelming, where do we often find Jesus in these storms of life? Asleep. Asleep in the bottom of a ship, in complete trust in God, experiencing the peace of God as Father. And so, many suggest that the only one who can truly pray Psalm 3, who can truly pray these kinds of imprecatory psalms, is Jesus. The only one who is actually able to ask God to respond against wickedness because he is the only one who has been fully free from sin. He is the only one who, when asking for God to respond against wickedness, would not be asking to also respond against himself, which is just so true. 
Understanding the, song, the Psalms as the songbook of Jesus is just unbelievably helpful to understanding Jesus. Like you put Jesus under pressure and the Psalms come out. Almost literally, you cut Jesus and the Psalms come out. The Psalms are the very alive and heart-beating prayers of Jesus. And so we can emphatically pray these Psalms that in the cross of Christ, Jesus prayed, could pray that God would respond against wickedness, and then God did respond against our wickedness in the cross of Christ. Jesus has defeated our greatest enemy. He has defeated our sin and our death in his death on the cross. And we need the power of God to continue to help us to fully and finally crush wickedness forever. That God would crush the wickedness in our own hearts. But is it true that only Jesus can pray these psalms about other people? Is it true that we can't or never should pray for God to act against the wicked in the world? While it's true that Jesus alone is sinless, there are many, many, many other handfuls of imprecatory speech acts in the New Testament. Paul, Peter, both spoken in Acts and in their letters. Jesus himself commends the persistent widow in Luke 18. She keeps on asking for justice of a judge against her enemy. And after this parable, Jesus says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will God keep putting them off? No, God the Father will respond to the prayers of his people who are acting or who are asking for God to act against their enemies. David isn't asking for God to act because a couple of people in his life are treating him unkindly. He's not asking God to break the teeth of someone who cut him off in traffic or even those who might disagree with him on social media over the best economic policies, immigration policies, the best political candidate, or the best political party. He's not even, in pride, asking God to act against just those who are being unusually insubordinate. Like if we're a manager at our work, or we're a team leader in our uh, college classes, or even at our workplace, um, like we ought to follow in David's footsteps. And anytime anybody gives us any kind of trouble, we should ask God to respond against them so that they might know who's boss. Now, David is asking God to act because much of the nation is trying to rid themselves of God's rule, trying to rid themselves of God's reign through his anointed king. And we, in our workplaces, are not God's anointed king. David is pleading that God would come and act, that he would clear and he would protect the temple kingdom, that he would clear and protect God's dwelling place in purity and holiness, that he would clear the land of those who hate God, that he would clear the land who, of those who are happy and proud in their hatred and their opposition against God, or even those who are happy to remain indifferent to the rule and reign of God. David is asking God to intervene and put an end to the rebellion. That God, by striking his enemies and then breaking their teeth, this is a tough one, 
this doesn't appear very much else in the Bible, this breaking the teeth stuff. It's either kind of like a shark suddenly becomes much less scary if it loses its teeth. Seriously, like a great white shark. It probably could kill you without teeth. It's enormous and strong, but it is far less scary if it doesn't have any teeth. Or perhaps the scoffing and vitriolic taunts of, of David's opponents kind of lose some of their poison if those taunts are coming through a broken, lisping mouth. It's not as scary any longer. It's almost comical. David pleads for God to arise, to act, to save by bringing justice against intense evil, against intense rebellion, that he would either disarm, defang the rebellion, or just break it and make it comical. This is something, this kind of justice, this kind of rebellion against God that at least Christians, but I think most people actually uh, inherently and implicitly want. Like, why do, we, why do you think? Have you ever thought about why shows like Dateline or true crime podcasts are so popular? Why? Why, is it, why are these kinds of things so popular? Why do we crave it as humans? Well, I think because we want justice in the world. We, want, we, we, we actually know implicitly, deep down, if we're not willing to objectively name it, we implicitly know that evil exists, and we want evil to be found out, to be exposed, to be held accountable. And yet, this is still confusing. I thought we were supposed to pray for our enemies, not that God would come and act in just, justice and in judgment. Well, yes, we do. We, we should pray for salvation and peace for our enemies. And yet, this gets difficult for us to understand because as 21st century Americans, for me to love my neighbor, how might, how might we define that? What does it mean to love your neighbor? If we, just, if we were to answer this ourselves or you were to ask just uh, any man on the corner of, on, on a street corner uh, right outside the church, what does it mean to love your neighbor? I think It'd be something like not doing or saying anything that contradicts the way that they want to live. I think that's probably a decent definition of what Americans think it means to love someone. But when this is our definition of love, then the judgment and justice of God then totally contradicts that, right? If what it means for me to love my neighbor is to not say or do anything that disallows them from just doing whatever they want, then God's justice, justice totally interrupts that. But the God who is love, the God who exercises justice, shows us that judgment is not in conflict with love. Trevor Lawrence says that there are ways that we can plead for God's justice that is actually for the good of our enemies. Now, not for the good if we are meaning that they just get to continue on their life of autonomous self-agency, not letting them do whatever they please, but that God's justice, acting in their good, confronts them with truth. God's justice is that which interrupts the violence of the wicked. His judgment confronts the wicked with the reality of whom they have become. It ceases their never-ending path toward increasing inhumanity and destruction. And so these psalms are prayers that God would actually save. 
Like how miraculously crazy must it have been in those first several years after Jesus' ascension, the church who very likely could have been praying Psalm 3 against Saul of Tarsus, the chief opponent of the church who was leading a statewide persecution and slaughter of Christians. That they might pray that he would be defanged or even publicly humiliated. That Saul then is interrupted and confronted with the risen Lord Jesus and is reborn. As you've likely heard before, the next Saul right now could be an ISIS operative or a neo-Nazi. And we should pray that one of the ways that God can end that violence, end that wickedness, is to completely transform. We lose an enemy when that enemy becomes a friend. And we should be praying for God to act in the lives of the wicked today. Again, certainly one way that God could bring salvation to David is by bringing the uh, former followers of Absalom into repentance, into renewed loyalty to David. That's one way to end the rebellion. And yet, all the while knowing and understanding that what, again, Spurgeon says is also true. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in sins. And so here's where David, reflecting on his own sin and contribution to this entire situation, is so important. We cannot forget grace Grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within, that will cleanse within here. Not just cleanse all the wickedness and evil out there, but first here, just as all of the sin out there is a threat to the temple kingdom of God's world, all of the sin in here is a threat to the temple kingdom of God's church. Opposition to America or our elected leaders is not the same kind of theological opposition against David or against David's son, Jesus. A better corollary is opposition to the church. And even we members of the church still dangerously bring in our own bits of divisiveness, our own bits of sin, our own bits of corruption. And we are all owed the same judgment and justice of God that we are asking God to act against. And yet, Jesus isn't just the David-like figure who is asking for God's justice, asking for God to act. Jesus is also the one who is counted amongst the wicked. He is the one Jesus then gets identified for us as being part of the rebellion. He is taken outside the camp and he receives the curse of God. He receives the justice of God on our behalf that we might receive God's blessing. That for those who would identify with the king and his kingdom, one's enemies might now be considered his friends. And so we start with ourselves. Depending on God's grace, understanding that the sin that remains within is still a threat to the temple kingdom of the church, Depending on God's grace, that 2 Corinthians 7 might be true, that we might cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. If I am praying a prayer of judgment 
an imprecatory psalm against, the, against wickedness and injustice, if I am a humble and reflective Christian, depending on grace, then I cannot pray that prayer without first reflecting on the cross, without first reflecting on my wickedness absorbed and forgiven, about my wickedness that still needs cleansing, pushed out all the way. But with those who have been hidden in the righteousness of God, for those who have had their sins forgiven, who are being cleansed, it is absolutely good and right to plead with God to act. To plead, Lord Jesus, return today. Put an end to all injustice, all violence, all exploitation, all suffering. All the injustice in the world, including mine, but certainly for those in the world who are experiencing pain, injustice, suffering, exploitation at the hands of others. Come and put an end to it. Come and bring love and justice to cleanse and fill the entire earth with your glory. That the world might know, that the scoffing might end, and that we might fully and finally experience that salvation belongs to the Lord Your blessing be on your people. And there's a sense in which that implies that blessing does not come on all. It doesn't imply it. It's true. Blessing comes for those who have had their wickedness forgiven, in which God's justice and judgment has been poured out but has been received on their behalf by Christ. We talked about in the membership class on Friday evening, only holy people can live with God. This is a weird reality. We are not saying, when we might say something like that, that get your life together, live a holy life, and then then you can deserve to live with God. No, but that God makes unholy people holy in transforming them in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And those who are once counted amongst the wicked are now counted amongst his people. We pray that if you are not trusting in him today, that you might tonight, that you might come to a place of recognizing your rebellion, recognizing your wickedness as we all have been, and come to a place of being identified with the King of coming to a place of assurance that when you think of God's face towards you, it is a face and it is a disposition of love, of welcoming, of acceptance, and of approval. But even as we do, it's good and right. It's good and right when we pray the Psalms to get to this place in Psalm 3 that we would ask God to arise, that we would ask God to strike our enemies on the cheek, to break the teeth of the wicked. The wickedness in our own hearts and the wickedness out there, but the wickedness all together. We pray that God would and let us now spend some time praying and coming to the table to think about how God has fully and finally dealt with our own sin and wickedness. Oh God, we pray. We pray that we would see our own wickedness and our own rebellion for what it was and is 
But we pray for those of us who are in Christ that we would consider ourselves to be fully, to be your sons and daughters. Not based on if we have a good week or a bad week, if we are uh, exhibiting certain signs of holiness or unholiness, but because of what you have done for us, that we would come to you in faith. That we would trust you in the assurance of our pardon in Christ. And that we would know you as Father. And we pray for those who are with us this evening who might not have come to a place of this kind of repentance and that they would feel unsettled, feel a place of uh, apartness from you. But God, that through the work of Jesus on their behalf on their behalf and their response in faith, that you would bring new life, that you would bring new hearts, that you would bring assurance, and that you would bring belonging to the family of God. God, we pray, though, that you would act against the wickedness, that you would act against injustice in the world. Lord Jesus, we pray, even so, come quickly and put an end to the rebellion, fully and finally in our own hearts, and fully and finally in the universe, we pray. In your name, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.